My guest today is Gautam Deb. Gautam is a group leader at the NBL and his group studies the evolutionary origins of nuclear organization architecture with a particular interest in nuclear modeling through the cell cycle. Gautam, it's great to have you on today. Uh, thanks very much, Shashan. Pleasure to be here. So before digging into the details of your work, I wanted to set up some context. So you did your PhD in systems biology and now you're working on something pretty different. What drew you towards studying the evolutionary biology of nuclear organization? And more generally, why do you think this is an important problem? Yeah, uh, it's a good question. So um, I started my PhD at a time when um, I think systems biology was at its peak, uh, peak popularity, peak coolness. And I think um, when I entered the program, there was this belief in the air that um, because we had developed the ability to uh, map um, phenotypes and, and outcomes in, in unprecedented detail because we had access to omics level um, data, we would now figure out how biological networks worked because um, as soon as we were able to put the components together and, and draw them into a map, we, we would have um, uh, insight. And I think what happened as the, as the, as the years passed was that um, we just accumulated more and more data and actually did not accumulate equivalent levels of, of insight. So um, as I went through the process of, 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 my, of my PhD, uh, and as all of us were grappling with these problems, I actually got drawn more and more towards the idea that um, we would actually understand these complex networks better if we were able to place them in the context of their evolutionary history. So it's not enough just to draw the network. It's also not enough to reverse engineer it um, in any given system. It's actually very important to understand how it was put together layer upon layer um, over billions of years. And so that kind of instinct led me to look for labs uh, when I was looking for postdocs to look for groups that, that were um, interested in linking cell biology to uh, evolutionary information. And my postdoc advisor, Buzz, uh, was running a lab where he was looking at the organization of cell shape uh, and cell division across various different systems. And he was starting to think about those evolutionary questions as well. So it was kind of a good confluence of people and, and ideas at that time. And I can tell you more about sort of what we did together in detail um, later, but just to kind of jump to your second question, which is why I think this is important in the first place. Uh, it's uh, basically uh, this idea that if we do not incorporate information from, um, from evolutionary history, we, uh, we're basically in danger of, of assigning function to the, to the wrong part of the network. And so I, I like to use the, an analogy for this, which I think works at least uh, up to some extent. Um, and that is that if um, aliens were to visit the planet um, and to be given uh, Tesla and uh, to have that as their only single data point uh, to figure out what the function of a car is, um, they might well uh, conclude that the function of a car um, is to have this sort of viewing platform with a screen that sort of cleans itself every few minutes or um, to just have um, an attractive object. Um, so the only way to actually make sense of this uh, very complicated machine um, is actually to be able to place it in context. And so imagine how the same aliens were given three different cars and a Honda Civic and a truck and, and a Tesla, then they would very quickly be able to reduce it to actually core functionality. The fact that they all share um, four wheels, an axle, two axles, um, a steering uh, wheel, a drivetrain, an engine, and uh, a lot of the other stuff is just optional extras. And so 
Um, this is basically the broad motivation for our general approach to cell biology, that if we don't place it in comparative context, then we might be missing the point. Right, that makes total sense, I like that analogy. So to set up some biological background, um, at a high level, can you maybe walk through some of the main mechanisms of nuclear division? Yeah, sure. So I suppose the first thing to say is that I think the phrase nuclear division itself is perhaps um, unfamiliar to most people that are working even in cell division because uh, mammalian cells, and in fact, most animals, uh, break down their nuclear envelope when they enter mitosis. So as the cells start dividing, the nuclear envelope is systematically dismantled um, and then reassembled at the end of cell division. So then you could argue that semantically, um, the concept of dividing the nucleus is maybe moot. But I think what we and many others uh, have discovered over, let's say, um, the last actually maybe even two decades is, is that the remodeling of the nucleus doesn't form absolutes, just either uh, completely breaking it down and building it up again or remodeling an intact nuclear envelope as happens in, in yeast. And so it's rather actually a continuum. And so more broadly then nuclear division is defined as the process of segregating the chromosomes and making sure that at the end of cell division, they're housed in two separate nuclear compartments. And so you start with one and you end up with two. It turns out that there are many different ways to get there. Um, you can either dismantle the whole thing, build it up, um, or you can actually try and split it, which is something that we worked on, um, or you do something in between. And we're still trying to figure out why different species have chosen different strategies. Right. So starting maybe with the one where they kind of reassemble and disassemble, do we kind of understand physically what's going on and how that happens? We understand a lot about the signaling mechanisms that control it. Um, we sort of uh, years of work, actually a lot of that work actually was done here at EMBL in mammalian cells to understand how this process is triggered. So the nuclear pore complexes that basically regulate transport across the nuclear envelope um, and that also basically anchor uh, the envelope itself are phosphorylated uh, by the same kinases that control the rest of the cell division process. And um, this triggers a local sort of disassembly of these NPC components. Um, the chromosomes are detached from the nuclear envelope. The whole thing is sort of taken apart and the membranes then lose their identity. And so they go from being just uh, to being very specific nuclear envelope membranes to uh, something that looks a lot more like the bulk ER that surrounds the nucleus and is connected to it. And um, for many years, we didn't understand too much about how it was built back up, but now um, there's a lot of good work basically showing how the chromosomes themselves then serve as a structural template to assemble the nuclear envelope around themselves at the end of mitosis and to reinsert the, the nuclear pore complexes that were taken apart in the beginning. Gotcha. So now kind of diving into your work. So you kind of relatively recently published that fission yeast may not undergo closed mitosis, but rather some hybrid mechanism. So to start off, I was hoping you can kind of briefly describe this mechanism. Uh, yes. So, so I, the, con the specific context for our work before we started, it was that um, fission yeast and in fact yeast in general, the budding yeast as well, are kind of canonical models for the very opposite of what we were just talking about. And they're canonical models for a closed mitosis, which means that the envelope retains its integrity throughout the process. So if you need to do this, then you need to build a microtubule spindle inside the nucleus. That spindle has to elongate. 
um, and separate the chromosomes inside um, this intact structure and the structure has to change shape and eventually be split. So the step we focused on specifically was trying to understand how it is split. And this turns out to be a sort of topologically non-trivial problem because the outer nuclear envelope is continuous with the endoplasmic reticulum. So we're talking about not just one membrane, but two membranes that need to somehow be cut and sealed without uh, letting their contents leak out basically. And um, what we were able to show in our, in our work was that um, the way this works is actually that the cell clusters a group of nuclear pore complexes towards the center of the bridge that um, connects these two dividing nuclei. So the nuclei sort of change shape, you end up with a kind of something that looks a bit like a dumbbell with two daughter nuclei connected by a long thin bridge that contains the spindle. And so this bridge contained, I mean, contains a cluster of nuclear pore complexes and those nuclear pore complexes are specifically disassembled um, leading to the two nuclei being split. So while this is happening, um, we discovered a protein that was basically plugging the two ends of this uh, little cluster of NPCs in the middle, basically preventing the process from spreading to the daughter nuclei. So while these were disassembling in the middle, while these are disassembling in the middle, um, nothing else happens to the rest of the nuclear envelope. So the daughter nuclei remain intact and uh, you have this local breakdown process that basically splits them in the middle and you, you have this protein that we discovered called LES1 that insulates them from it. And so just to kind of bring it back full circle, um, the steps of NPC disassembly here look very similar to the steps of NPC disassembly that we just discussed that have been characterized in great detail for, for animal cells. So that means that even though on the surface, these two strategies for dividing the nucleus look totally different, they're basically making use of the same uh, mechanism. Hmm. So from an evolutionary perspective, is that surprising or maybe expected or hard to say? Well, we actually, to be fair, we kind of went in, we went in looking for a conserved mechanism um, because we sort of suspected that there might be one, but um, to be honest, we never, we never really conceptualized it that way. So we, it was a surprise. It was a surprise, in fact, um, driven actually by these. So, 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 so we started studying the kinetics of this process and um, we collaborated very closely with an expert in um, uh, electron tomography, uh, Wanda Kukulski, who's, who's, who's on, on this uh, paper. And uh, using this protein less one, we managed to stage cells at exactly the right point in their, in their nuclear division cycle. And it was actually these electron tomograms that um, gave us the clue because we sort of saw uh, frozen kind of at a, at a kind of conveniently timed uh, snapshot, um, the uh, dismantling of the envelope, but only in that specific spot. And once we saw that, we realized we were looking at uh, an analogous process. So, so yeah, it does, it does suggest that this process of NPC remodeling is kind of deeply conserved across these different models. Uh, and perhaps uh, even sort of, uh, let's say, uh, pan-eukaryotic, but that's something that remains to be seen because this is just this is just two examples, right? So kind of what's the roadmap looking forward? Are you going to still study fission yeast or are you going to maybe move to more complex systems now? What's the plan, I guess? Uh, the plan is to um, stick with unicellular organisms in general um, because 
we're sort of interested in this diversity of mechanisms and animals actually represent a very small um, proportion of this diversity when you, when you sort of look at the whole uh, eukaryotic tree. But the idea is in general that we will continue to focus on uh, nuclear organization and nuclear dynamics. And uh, we sort of take, um, let's say a kind of two, two pronged uh, approach. One is to study just as we did with, with this Pombi uh, cell division is to study specific mechanisms in specific systems, whether in yeast or, or in other uh, unicellular eukaryotes. And the other idea that I'm uh, sort of planned that I'm very excited about is that we're also um, starting to do some experimental evolution experiments where we perturb, let's say, again, yeast, um, we perturb some aspect of nuclear organization, and then um, try to understand how the system compensates for this defect, but also to see whether we can evolve a response. And so, so we're trying to invert basically the whole, the whole process to try and drive the evolution in the lab. Nice. So I wanted to switch gears a bit. So COVID has changed the world in a lot of ways. I wanted to get your take on what do you think are some of the positive sociological changes that may have occurred in the scientific community that you may uh, think are here to stay? So, so uh, I, guess the, <laughs> I guess the short answer is, uh, I don't think any of us know. I think everybody's basically been wrong about almost any predictions they made <laughs> about the pandemic, whether an epidemiological expert or not. Um, so, so I guess the short answer is I don't know. I think scientists adapted relatively quickly um, to the situation. Uh, most research institutes were quick to adjust, to move to kind of shift-based work and remote mixture of remote work and shift-based work. So, so in terms of our daily work, you know, I think people adjusted. In terms of what it means for the way scientists interact and share information, I think there will be some more long-term consequences. Um, so there have been disruptions to the publishing model. There have been um, sort of, there's been a big explosion in the sharing of uh, research, both related to COVID and not related to COVID um, through uh, preprinting. Uh, COVID related research is being peer reviewed faster and being published much faster than basically any um, uh, epidemic related research in, in, uh, in modern history. Um, and scientists have had to adjust drastically the way we exchange information amongst ourselves, right? So obviously with no conference travel, um, everything has moved online and um, we're still in the process of adapting to basically a purely online uh, format for exchange. So also you've done your graduate training in the US, then you went to the UK and now you're at the EMBL in Germany. Um, do you think there are any big cultural differences between how science is done in the US versus Europe? Um, yeah, I, I, again, I guess with the caveat that you can never generalize from, from, individual, from individual institutions. But yeah, I, I think I felt that there were differences. Um, I felt that um, a lot of that can be traced back to basically lab structure and, fun, and funding, um, let's say the organization of, of, uh, of, of uh, funding mechanisms. So, so labs in the, in the US or at least at a med school um, like um, Stanford tend to be bigger. They tend to be funded by relatively large chunks of money through R01 uh, mechanisms or, or similar. And um, they tend therefore to be also relatively self-sufficient. So that meant that we, you know, in Tobias's lab where I did my PhD, we had our own microscopes. 
Um, and we did a lot of our own work internally. And a lot of our collaborations were actually internal collaborations between people in the group. We were a big group. Um, labs in the UK in general, I would say also mostly across most parts of Europe at EMBL as well, are much smaller. Uh, so there is an intrinsic um, kind of, well, that's one component. And the second component is a lot more um, uh, sort of capital equipment is organized into centralized facilities. So this was true at UCL and it's true at EMBL. EMBL actually is, is, is kind of a world leader in that respect in terms of basically having um, sort of a lot of centralized facilities that uh, are basically have the buying power to, to get the latest and greatest, um, well, take your pick, electron microscopes, light microscopes, um, proteomics um, equipment, you know, mass spec machine, whatever you want. Um, and so, and then users pay kind of nominal fee to, to participate. And so individual labs don't have to take on that cost. So because of these two components, smaller labs, smaller grants, it's three components and, and basically centralized facilities, group, groups just tend to work together um, a lot more. It's more, it's more um, spontaneous and natural um, for intergroup collaborations to emerge. And so I think that was the main difference. I found that in the beginning, I got worried because I thought maybe we didn't have the resources we needed to do the stuff we did, but actually it just meant that those were distributed and shared in a more, in a kind of more broad-based fashion. So I've also read that, um, you know, you have a pretty big interest in theater and you're on the verge of <laughs> trying to become a director actor in your undergraduate days. I wanted to ask, how has this passion influenced you as a scientist? Um, well, yeah, I don't know the thing that things made it onto the internet somewhere in interviews and stuff. So now it's, it's kind of stuck and now everyone asks about it. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it wasn't such a, yeah, it wasn't such a deeply thought out thing. It was simply, I did a lot of theater in, in university and I loved it. And it kind of felt like maybe something I could do it, but it felt very much at odds with this other career path. So it kind of in, ended up being a binary choice. And I must say, mm, it's been difficult to find place for it uh, in the subsequent years because, you know, long rehearsal times and so on are not really compatible with with long experiments so so in a very active sense i haven't had the chance to engage in much theater but in terms of how this shapes my perspective i mean i maybe I, that's really maybe that's a hard maybe it's a hard thing to quantify but um i let's just say that i i have a very deep appreciation for the kind of um, human aspects of, of how science works. So uh, in terms of its sociology and in terms of its history, in terms of how it's linked to the kind of um, historical and philosophical context. So let, so I I don't view as science existing in isolation from from people. And so maybe maybe that maybe the theater stuff plays in a little bit, but but I also know that there are lots of scientists who also feel this way that don't necessarily <laughs> um, yeah, do any acting. Um, I would like to get back to it point cool so last couple of questions uh, to wind down the podcast so in 2016 you wrote a paper proposing that eukaryotes emerge from archaea through um, a transfer of bacterial genes and membranes to the symbiotic relationship between the bacteria and these loci archaean cell um, so i recently read that there was a nature paper that came out last year where they were able to isolate and study an archaeal cell i believe related to these loci cells I was wondering if this paper has at all influenced your initial theory from 2016. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, so so I think you've drawn the links there very well. Just to just to make it, you know, just to uh, give credit everywhere where credit is due. So so the actual original hypothesis for so uh, 
Uh, first of all, I think it's a consensus in the field actually that archaea, that eukaryotes evolved from a, let's say, symbiotic um, interaction between archaea and bacteria. So genomically, this is no longer in doubt. What people are arguing about is really the process by which this happened. So how do you go from two cells without nuclei to uh, a single cell with um, uh, all these internal structures, the nucleus, the ER, membrane tra trafficking, actin, cytoskeleton, whatnot. So that's what people have been trying to figure out. And of course, this event is buried 2 billion years in the past, and, um, and we, we can't just reconstruct it computationally. So uh, the discovery of these Asgard archaea got the whole field rejuvenated because they had many, um, they had many genes, they expressed many genes that looked eukaryote-like that people had not discovered in prokaryotes before. And in the last year, um, as you pointed out, um, people finally managed to culture one of these, uh, these uh, Asgard cells um, or one of these Asgard species. And, um, and it looks very interesting. So we can talk about that in a, in a second. So just in, in that context, the, the 2016 uh, kind of, let's say speculative review that we wrote um, basically um, argued that the Asgard um, genomes we're missing, let's say, certain components to produce the kind of cell biology we actually see in eukaryotes. So very specifically, these Asgard archaea um, were found to have small GTPases. That this was exciting because in eukaryotes, small GTPases organize the endomembrane system. Um, however, in order to organize the endomembrane system, these GTPases must be, must be tethered using small lipid anchors to membranes. If you don't tether them physically to membranes, they can't organize the membranes. And basically we argued in this paper that those tethers and the proteins required to make the tethers were all missing um, from this Asgard, from the first Asgard genome that we had access to at the time. And we suggested that maybe those tethers actually came from the bacterial symbiont. And so combination like kind of superpower, I mean, superpowers emerge from a combination of ordinary things. So small GTPs is from the Asgard uh, tethers from the bacteria together form an endomembrane system. So this was our speculation. Uh, in a sense, the new genomes and the new discoveries have not really uh, changed this in the sense that there are now many Ascar genomes. There's more than 80, I think, now, different uh, individual strains and species. And um, none of them, so far to my knowledge, encode these the things you need to make these lipid tethers. So in some sense, I guess, the jury is still out on whether this would be a plausible mechanism for uh, producing emergent cell biology. I guess more, more broadly, whether this specific thing turns out to be true or not, I think this idea um, will uh, continue to have weight in that it's not enough just to say that um, certain sets of genes uh, produce cell biology. So it, it's, it's not enough just to have the presence of GTPases or actins um, to produce uh, phenotypes. So last question for you. Um, what's your favorite idea or concept you ever encountered in evolutionary cell biology? So my, my favorite, so my, <laughs> my favorite idea in evolutionary biology that I think has major implications for cell biologists interested in evolution is this idea of a, of a neutral complexity ratchet um, kind of put together by actually several groups of people, um, including um, uh, for Doolittle, uh, Doolittle. Um, and this idea is that uh, basically linked to this, the, the idea that not all complexity is selective. So we, we have this tendency to think of more complex objects as being more complex because that complexity is required to do stuff. 
Um, and it turns out that there are very plausible and now actually experimentally demonstrated mechanisms for complexity, complexity to emerge um, just spontaneously um, from the way proteins um, and genes interact. And so uh, a really nice kind of example of this is, um, uh, I guess, generically illustrated by, by a toy example. So imagine you have a, a protein A that um, homo dimerizes or homo trimerizes to, to make a complex. So you need three or four or six copies of protein A to make a structure. Um, let's say the gene that encodes protein A is duplicated. You now have protein A and B um, made from sister genes that are basically identical. And so now they can form uh, a kind of, they can all bind to each other because they're basically identical. Uh, and uh, now they form, let's say, a, a heterohexamer but in any combination, right? All you need is for some small set of mutations to arise in the interface um, between these proteins A and B. And as soon as one of those mutations makes it so that A can no longer bind itself, it can only bind to B or vice versa, um, you will introduce a kind of obligate um, relationship um, between the two. So now it's not enough to, to have either A or B or a mixture. You need exactly three copies of A and three copies of B to form a stable interface. And once that interface is stable, then more neutral mutations will arise that make it even more codependent. And so even though there was absolutely no functional reason to have um, um, a hetero um, a hexamer of two kind of interspersed tetramers of A and B, this is what the system looks like today. And so you would conclude from studying it that there's some functional reason for this. Um, and there's actually none. So this is so this is basically emergent. This is the emergent complexity, and this process of accumulate of neutral um, mutations eventually producing a situation uh, where where an interaction or a protein or anything becomes essential is called a neutral complexity ratchet. It's very cool, Gautam. Thanks a lot. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much.